Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are rereading our favorite books, the O'Brien Aubrey Matron series. Ian, we've jumped into the last volume, at least the last full volume of the series. Catch us up with where we are and where we're headed. With pleasure, Mike. Here we are in chapter two. Back in chapter one, the surprises had received their prize money left over from the previous book before heading off for Chile. On the way to Chile, being struck by an unknown ship in a dark storm and barely making it back for repairs. Lord Barmouth, the local commander-in-chief, had delayed repairs to the surprise now that she's a private vessel. And with Napoleon defeated in Europe, many of the surprise's crew had deserted. Jack planned to repair the ship privately in Gibraltar to get her to Funchal in Madeira, and Stephen had been worried that the Chileans, our destination for many, many books now, might not wait for the surprise with all these further delays. This time, Mike, in Chapter 2, Jack returns to his amorous ways. The surprise's fortunes change and change again. Stephen gets to be disappointed, worried, concerned, and, heaven forbid, ill-dressed. A fellow by the name of Wantage comes back, although not entirely the man he once was, and there's a fiery ending for all concerned. Whoa, okay. Yeah, quite the, uh, the rollercoaster, this little short chapter here. Um, I, I love that this opens with a nice summary of where we all are and what's going on with the people. Tell us how that's going to work out. Well, I, I, I love this too, Ian. This is, this is so amazing to me how O'Brien manages to pack so much into a, a one-sentence paragraph, right? It says, yeah. to the casual observer, it would have seemed difficult, if not impossible, to carry on an affair in so small and tight-knit a community as Gibraltar. Yet, it was done or attempted to be done by those who did not mind mixing levity and love, done on a quite surprising scale, and when Lord Barmas, current mistress an exceptionally vivacious woman who hated Isabel, told him that she and Jack Aubrey met daily in a hayloft or at the house of a complicit friend, it did not surprise him very much. Now, there's a sentence. <laughs> right. It's, it's a great example, isn't it, of a single sentence opening paragraph. L lots of new action just introduced in that sentence there, especially what we had already begun to suspect, but what is clearly now this intrigue going on between Jack and cousin cousin in air quotes isabel now barmouth didn't wholly believe it according to the text um he was willing to believe that perhaps this could be the easy familiarity of childhood friends but he certainly didn't like people saying that the two were having an affair because true or not where horns were concerned he far preferred giving to receiving or even appearing to receive and Mike, there's an interesting take on Lord Barmouth's character here. Uh, he was a brave man in warfare. However, domestic warfare was something different entirely. And his wife, Isabel, is, conversely, an exceptionally courageous woman with a flow of angry language, uh, with, a, with a tongue on her that could really wound him. And uh, when she gets angry, he really dreads how she might turn to him. She's 
stubborn as well. She's as unshakable as a terrier that will let itself be killed before letting go, which is quite a grim simile to use about a woman, but there you go. Um, not quite as bad as the prey mantis eating the head off its lover, but getting there. He's nonetheless deeply attached to Isabel, his wife, in his own way, and would prefer her to be in good humour with him. So Barmouth is on the horns of a bit of a dilemma here, that word horn again. Um, he realises that Jack is one of those rare protégés of Lord Keith. And even though Lord Keith is no longer commander-in-chief here on the scene in the Mediterranean, he could well return to high office. So Barmouth discreetly checks out the progress of the repairs to the surprise and decides that he wants to get Jack gone quickly. So he visits the ship himself. And Jack is really surprised when Barmouth shows up aboard the ship, shows him over the damages, nonetheless, decides to just play it straight. And Barmer says there is some uneasiness now in Whitehall over the ultimate destination of somebody that he, Barmouth refers to now as Cousin Jack. And Barmouth says, rather going against what he'd previously said, he's now going to speed up all of her repairs. He's going to get her underway immediately with all of the supplies, the munitions, the powder and the shot that he might need. And J Jack's grateful, but has a really hard time keeping the suspicion out of his voice. And I think that... Jack is a little suspicious. Mike, I, I think Stephen is a bit more penetrating when it comes to figuring out what might be going on here. Yeah, yeah, I, I think Jack's like, wow, I, what's going on here? I don't believe this. Is there, you know, is there a trick? Well, Jack tells Stephen that he was completely dumbfounded when he heard all this, and he was amazed at this strange turn of events and wondered if perhaps it was Stephen's doing. You know, Stephen had pulled some of his intelligence strings in the ministry, and Stephen said. Never in life, my dear. Stephen looks at him affectionately, but inside Stephen's thinking, did it never come into your mind that the freedoms you've taken with the gentleman's wife, these twilight rambles, the sea bathing under the moon, however innocent, could scarcely pass unnoticed in this idle peacetime population of lechers, and that the glad news would have been conveyed to the ear most intimately concerned? Like, Jack, don't you get it? <laughs> come on, Jack. He doesn't want you yeah, dallying with his wife here. And Stevens, Stevens kind of excited. He's, you know, he's delighted to be getting underway faster and says, well, are we going to be headed directly for Sierra Leone? And Jack says, well, no, no, no. We're only going to be patched up enough to get us to Madeira, where we'll have the more complete repairs and where we'll be able to recruit a full crew for the Horn and our mission in Chile. You know, we can't, with this crew and the ship in this shape, we can't expect to do all that we need to do down there. Well, Jack sees that Stephen's looking very discouraged here. Uh, Stephen says, no, no, it's it's nothing. And he heads back to his room to finish uh, an ongoing letter to Christine Woods. Uh, we remember Stephen's kind of famous for writing these ongoing letters to Diana. Now, this is one mm. to Christine. He's not only writing it, but as we'll hear later, he's writing and rewriting and rewriting it here. He's thanking her for sending the bones of his potto to the Royal Society, who's going to hold it for him to collect later. And uh, he says he's got to deliver this bad news, that he's been completely deceived in thinking that he'd have the pleasure of seeing her soon and learning more about her newly hatched goshawk. So, right, it's, it's, yeah, this yeah. is all complete Serious yeah, natural philosophy stuff. This is, this, is, this is not me with the uh, amorous intentions for you, Christine. No, far be it. But he hopes that after their long repairs in Madeira, he'll eventually be able to see her and 
hopefully we'll have more news about that in the next few weeks. In the meantime, he says, I've enclosed a hermaphrodite crab whose singularity I'm sure your keen eye will appreciate. And he ends the letter with the most respectful greeting of your humble and obedient servant, S. Matron. So Stephen trying to be very chase. And, and, and I love it while I'm being chased. By the way, here's a crab that's got all kinds of sex organs. <laughs> but I'm sure you'd appreciate that. I, I just love this. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's a nice little juxtaposition as well. Jack letting the rest of the world politely believe or disbelieve whether he's carrying on with Isabel. Stephen petrified about whether Christine herself believes that he might or might not want to carry on with her. They're both denying a little bit of their, uh, their what's the right word, their sexual identity in a kind of a way here. Right. Anyhow, Stephen can't give it up. He's really obsessed that he might be committing some terrible faux pas in the way he's writing. This might be seen as some kind of levity or inappropriate or ill-timed tendency towards yeah, intimacy in this set of letters that he's writing. So instead of sealing it, he has one more look through it, checking for expressions of any kind of undue familiarity. He's already on his third draft, we learn. And while he's taking his time combing through it one more time, who comes in but Killick to say that the guinea man who's going to carry his letter is sailing within the hour, so the doctor had better look sharp. If the letter isn't carried over directly, the opportunity is going to be missed. Now, Stephen's still very worried about whether he might accidentally have left some evidence of impropriety of thought or of desire in this letter, some unwarranted evidence of affection, given that this is coming from one person who just lost his spouse and is going to another who is in the same situation. And I love this description of the dilemma that Stephen is on, or rather this duality about her, his character here. Dissimulation, says O'Brien, was nothing remotely new to Maturin. To it, he owed his continuing existence. He's talking there about his career as a spy. Yet this particular suppressio veri was by no means his province. Suppressio veri, Latin for concealment of a fact or truth. Although discreet, sometimes to the point of apparently being frigid towards women, Stephen still has strong male impulses and often recalls the sight of what we learn was Christine swimming in stark, innocent nakedness across a clear African stream. And if that's not a compelling daydream, night dream for a man alone on a ship, I don't know what is. Right. Um, the memory of her torments his mind, stopping him from falling asleep. And even more, it says, he remembers the clearly perceptible pressure of her hand when they had last parted. Ah, oh, and this is, this is teenage Stephen. This is gawkish, tongue-tied, hopelessly uh, you know, adrift when it comes to his female relationships, kind of a Stephen. And he's been missing <laughs> since many, many, many books ago. It's really, really sweet to see. Too true. He thinks about all this later as he's trying to fall asleep. And he's attempting to reread each of the paragraphs of this letter that he's now sent off in his mind. And a part of his consciousness asks him, state a quality common to all those women for whom, as an adult, you have felt a strong tenderness. And he answers himself, a strong amorous tenderness? And the voice comes back, of course, you lemon. <laughs> and he reflects and says, in all cases, they've held themselves well. They have all, without the least consciousness or affectation, taken quite long strides for a woman 
placing each foot directly in the line of its fellow, a holy natural grace. I thought, wow. I've always thought of Stephen as kind of this amazing sort of guy. And I don't know that I've ever met another man that would answer quite this way here. I thought that was fabulous here. (laughs) And O'Brien goes on to tell us that Stephen's mentally weary. He's anxious. He has these repeating thoughts of having said too much or said the wrong thing. And and now that those letters are out of his grasp and sailing on a favorable wind towards Christine, his spirit is so weary that he turns to his old friend and enemy, Laudanum, the alcoholic tincture of opium, and plunges into a deep sleep, guilty at first, and then pure balm. So, ah, no. No, no, Stephen, don't do it. You know, if, if we're getting a look back at a lot of the canon in this book, you know, and we'll see a lot of characters come back and everything else, I thought, this is one character I didn't need to see come back. No, no, no. As one set of learning, we didn't want to see Stephen unlearning. You know, all of that sort of self-control and sort of insight that he had has, has deserted him for now. And Mike, I, I love the way that we're seeing the characters laid out here. We, we got it a little bit about the Admiral, but we're getting it now about Stephen. And it's a, I think it's an, a, a gift of O'Brien's writing of all of these characters that they have these character traits, but they're not consistent. And in fact, they arise in contradictory ways. So to take a tiny example, the Admiral here is brave in combat, but a coward in his romantic relationships. Jack Aubrey is wise and prescient when he's afloat, but he's a buffoon when he's ashore. Stephen Maturin is deceitful, naturally, fluently deceitful as a spy, but painfully transparent as a suitor. And I was kind of thinking that, and I reached even further back, but who else is contradictory? Mm. Diana Villiers, devoted as a friend and generous to a fault, but could be heartless as a lover. So these dualities are are part of, I think, how the the character writing of O'Brien is just such a high level, so, so deep and so realistic as well. Right, right. That's. I think that's exactly it. And it's. It's not only his shades of gray in terms of right, wrong, and morality, and things like yeah. that. And and having us look at that, and go really, you know, what to this? But as you say, just real life. That real people yeah. are not cut from one mold and all consistent throughout. I love it. Well, Midshipman Wells was having trouble waking Stephen in the morning, so he's yeah. in this laudanum coma here. No kidding. He yes. points. Stephen towards the window, and Stephen sees the sheer hulk. And Ian, we're going to ask you more on uh, that in a moment here. It's moving towards the surprise. And on deck, greeted by Jack, Stephen watches the new foremast brought home. Jack says no one would have wanted to miss a minute of that sight. And he asks if Wells had filled Stephen in on what he'd missed so far. And Stephen replies, with the utmost clarity, I was extremely gratified. Jack's delighted, and he asks Mr. Wells to tell him, Harding, what the doctor saw, and that he was extremely gratified. And, and uh, yeah, this is another one of these things that just warms my heart here. This, this, you know, sight of Jack's boyish enthusiasm. I, you know, it doesn't matter how many times he's seen a mass replace. This is, oh, you can't miss this. Stephen's recognition of how much this means to Jack. And I think back that this is, this is O'Brien finest, that to Jack, this is an any mast on any ship. This is the surprise. This is his ship. He's commanding it. He loves the ship, and the ship is a character, as you say. And and to Stephen, this isn't any captain. This is his friend, his particular yeah. friend. And he wouldn't want to diminish his friend's joy by an iota. So I was just, yes. Well, Shearhawk, Ian, 
you know, I, I kept thinking Marvel Comics, this big green guy that gets angry and everything. That That is not a sheer Hulk. What is a no, sheer Hulk? No, no, no. Hulk meaning the the bare hull of a ship, if you like. But it's, it's easy to read this and think sheer in the sense of like, it's it's a complete another Hulk, like sheer madness, sheer Hulk. No, no. So a, a sheer Hulk means something very specific. It's the hull of a ship set up in a particular way so that it can be used in shipbuilding and repair as a kind of floating crane. And if you think about it for a second, if you've got to put a very tall thing like a mast into a very large thing like a ship, back in the days of the 18th century, there were no tall tower cranes and there were no helicopters and there was nothing else to help you do high lifts. So you need to do something else to get you the same result. And that's what a sheer Hulk is. A sheer Hulk is a hull with these shears, this pair of legs, um, like the jib of a crane, to help you place the lower masts of a ship when the ship's either being built or repaired. These booms or known as shears forming this kind of crane jib are attached to the base of the Hulk's lower masts or beam and supported from the top of those masts. And blocks and tackles are used to place or remove the lower mast of the vessel that's being worked on. These lower masts, so the foremast, the mainmast, and the mizzenmast, are the largest and most massive single timbers on a ship. So not only are they tall, they're also really heavy single pieces of timber. They weigh a huge amount. And we know that at sea, ships themselves can raise and strike their own top gallant masts for sure, and top masts even when there's a blow. But replacing and repairing whole main masts is a whole other thing that requires one of these sheer hulks. Um, there's a really, really great picture that we'll share in our socials of the arrival of HMS Clyde having her uh, mast repaired with a sheer hulk. It's a really, really good illustration of this kind of improvised crane arrangement that we get with a sheer hulk. And clearly a rare kind of evolution for a sailor. You wouldn't see very many of these going on in your career. And so it's funny that Stephen's not really sure what to make of it and could almost be blowing it off if, as you say, Mike, it wasn't for his friendship with Jack here. Now, Jack says that the Admiral, that's Barmouth, is about to bundle them off as if they have the plague. And he still seems to be scratching his head a little bit about what the Admiral's motivation is. He expects that all the powder and shot is going to come aboard at any minute. And he re repeats this mention that the Admiral have made of uneasiness at home about the delays in getting on with the Chilean mission. Stephen says that he hopes there was no hint at reprobation. He's talking about here about reprobation from the ministry, not reprobation from the Admiral for Jack's canoodling with his wife. He says the ministry doesn't think the surprise has been wasting her time. Jack says he thinks it's just official impatience. The government, as so often, expecting their ships to be in two places at once, whatever the difference in longitude. And that's, that's a line that we've heard from Jack before as well. So... The supplies in the stores come aboard all day at the pace that Jack had predicted. It really wears out this remaining crew, which, if we remember, is shorthanded because they've had so many deserters. Along with the supplies, they do get three new midshipmen by the names of Glover, Shepherd, and Store. Two of them are sons of Jack's former shipmates, and we presume that that's a good thing. One is imposed by Lord Barmouth, and we are probably meant to suppose that that could be a bad thing. And in any case, these new squeakers, these new midshipmen, or put to work, despite the fine clothes that they're wearing. At sunset, Jack's barge under his new coxswain, Latham, and there's a fabulous line here in the text, it says, Latham, a capital seaman, but one who could never fill Bondin's place in his own, his captain's, or his fellow's affection. So right. I was glad to see 
unlike Diane, who we got kind of some you know bad reviews right after her death with Bond, and we're getting very good reviews. Even Latham is thinking, right. man, I'm I'm not worthy of filling Bond in shoes here. Latham takes Jack and Stephen ashore. Jack's heading to pay his respects to Lord Keith. Stephen wants to get a deeply encrypted message to Dr. Jacob to beg him to please send any word he can gather on the presence or absence of any Chileans and to come to Funchal himself if he learns anything of consequence. So Stephen's off to deliver this message. On his way back, he sees Lady Barmouth and Mr. Wright. They all exchange greetings. Mr. Wright excuses himself to go off on an errand. And Stephen tells Lady Barmouth that her name was just in his mind. And he says, you know, I, I was wondering if it would be presumptuous for me to stop by and, and take my leave. I know we, we haven't known each other very long. And she said, no, certainly it wouldn't be presumptuous. But, but why are you talking about leaving? I, I thought you were going to be here much longer. <laughs> and Stephen says, well, we're actually sailing later this evening. Jack was ordered to stop by earlier today to take leave of the Admiral. And Lady Barmouth is thinking, ah. So he set that up so that Jack would come by when I was gone away. She thanks Stephen and says she'd be so sorry not to say goodbye to Jack Aubrey, her old friend. And as she heads off, right, Stephen watches her walk off and the text says with just that life pace that he had in mind, that subtle, graceful movement that Stephen so appreciated in Diana and Christine, the one that he'd just been thinking about and talking to himself kind of as he's falling off to sleep the night before. Later that night, as Surprise glides along outside the mole, she's making her way off, Stephen sees that very same step in one of the figures on shore when the light is too dim to see any faces. And it's a figure that is discreetly waving, the text says, among the odd scattered immobile fishermen. And I thought to myself, ah, there's our payoff from the last lines of the hundred days. Who hey, was that unidentified figure waving from the shore? Well, as we were kind of speculating, it was Isabel and Christine and Diana all had that same movement. And for all we know, you know, having never seen Mary O'Brien walk, maybe it was Mary as well. Oh, it's wonderful. It, it, it's a really beautifully written out idea. It's, it's basically a, a long and gorgeously written way of saying, do you know what? Stephen Maturin has a type, <laughs> and so does Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, love that. Love it, love it. And if I'm going to be uh, Team Christine, and I, I don't know that I am yet, but if I'm going to be Team Christine, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about how weirdly fixated Stephen Maturin can get <laughs> about his romantic relationships. <laughs> There's something a little bit creepy. <laughs> but anyhow, I, I think that's all a ways off yet. We're off. And as they sail away, it's clear that the initial work on the surprise has not yet really restored her former sailing qualities. And therefore, there's good reason for them to be heading for more help at Funchal. Again and again, says the text, the Ringle, who in any case was schooner-rigged, had to ease her sheets or even take in sail, not to scoot ahead. Discreet manoeuvres, but never unnoticed, never unresented by the surprises but the ship's order was restored back to their regular seagoing life with a small group of sound, solid, agreeable professional seamen. And the voyage to Madeira seems to be going ahead in a whirl, in a nice, quick, 
smooth, easy-flowing little paragraph or two, the voyage is pretty much done. They are approaching Funchal. The lookout calls Land Ho, and adding that he sees that there's, there's a bit of a reddishness about the land that he can see. Jack is really delighted that the sighting has been made almost exactly to the minute. Another victory for Jack Aubrey's navigation and seamanship. But as they get closer, everyone is up on deck peering at the great crimson blaze ashore. A blaze that includes the entire part of the town where ships are built and with it their intended great shipyard. The blaze is even greater than anything they'd seen in the Adriatic or the Aegean in their last campaign. And Mike, besides being a heavy plot reversal, like, okay, another reason why we can't get going to do the thing that we need to do. This is a really interesting echo of all the arson that they'd been fomenting in the previous book, right? Stephen Maturin had been busy finagling matters so that underpaid or unpaid shipwrights in all these yards in the Adriatic might take matters into their own hands and and commit arson. And what's happening here? Maybe is it possible that this is a case of his fomenting having gone too far, that the little plot that he hatched with his buddy, I can't remember the name of his his fellow agent at the beginning of the 100 days, maybe they'd been a little bit too indiscriminate. Maybe the Carbonari, those arson-inclined organized crime fellows in the Adriatic, maybe their writ runs as far as Madeira. Mm. And anyhow, there's all sorts of irony wrapped up in the fact that it's arson. It's a fire that's caused them to have this big new plot reversal. Mike, flames, plot reversals, disappointment, delay. Maybe we need something to help ourselves out here. Maybe a glass of something local. How about a glass of Madeira to cool the flames? And then we can be right back as soon as we're done with this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope that cooling glass of Madeira has done us all well here. They've arrived in the evening to these flames. In the morning, they salute the castle during their approach, and everyone in the town is so exhausted from fighting the fire that the castle takes a full five minutes before returning the salute. And as that happens, a small, dirty boat pulls off from the shore headed for the surprise. And as it pulls up, a thin young man in the remains of a naval uniform the text says, comes aboard. Wantage, sir, come aboard if you please. Now, Jack looks down and reminds Wantage that there's an R against his name. Jack says, you know, you did not respond to the ship's repeated signals when we last left Funchal. And all the shipmates are standing around remembering, oh yeah, Wantage, he's the, uh, you know, he's the guy that was hooking up with that shepherdess in the hills here. Wantage says it wasn't his fault. A gang of men had taken him far into the mountains, you know, locked him up, beat him, and they beat him every Sunday until a monk there in the in the mountains convinced them that it just wasn't the right thing to do. So they castrated him. They, he says, he, they cut me and let me go. I was like, ah. Jack now sees that Wantage is very much reduced and very embarrassed. So he calls for Mr. Daniel 
and tells Daniel that he has a new colleague, Algernon Wantage, master's mate, detained in the mountains, now rejoined. He asks Daniel to introduce Wantage to the midshipmen's berth, remind them of Wantage's seniority, and to make Mr. Wantage comfortable. Jack also calls for Wantage's sea chest to be brought up from the hold and restored to him. And I, I thought to myself, ah, this is Jack being both a really good human and a great leader here. You know, I think Aww. he's thinking to himself, remember, this is Wantage who he was thinking, oh, well, I'll never be able to replace him until he finds Daniel. And says, ah, Daniel also loves mathematics and navigation. So he's putting the two of these guys together here. Both of them in the past have demonstrated really good character aboard. And, you know, I think Jack is hoping, I'm certainly hoping, you know, that they become allies and potential friends with their common interests. Yes, fingers crossed. And you you wonder, as you often do, when there's a new secondary character or a a renewed, I should say, secondary character, does does this mean that they're about to suffer some terrible fate? Or are they going to be with us for a while? Or are they going to come and go ah, like a Zephyr? Anyhow, here we are in Madeira and Jack and Stephen head ashore to call on His Excellency and then uh, the port captain. Stephen reminds Jack that he speaks only a little Portuguese and understands even less when he hears it. And here's another duality, Mike. Stephen Maturin is a broad-minded liberal fellow when it comes to all kinds of parts of his life, but he's a bit of an old reactionary when it comes to languages that he doesn't like, (laughs) especially Iberian languages that are not Catalan. No man born of woman, he says, has ever understood spoken Portuguese without he is a native or brought up to comprehend that strange, blurred, muffled, indistinct utterance from a very early, almost toothless age. Anyone with a handful of Latin, even Spanish or Catalan, can read it without much difficulty, but to comprehend even the drift of the colloquial, rapidly muttered version, and then the little speech here tails off. He can't even bring himself to imagine what it would take to understand spoken Portuguese. Ah, <sighs> bless him. Anyhow, the port captain... Oh, oh by the way, um, if you want to call out continuity issues, I've got a feeling that the language that Paul Bettany was speaking over the side of the surprise to the trader women in the movie of Master and Commander, I'm pretty sure he was speaking Portuguese. So, mm, they hadn't read all the way to the end. <laughs> Never mind. The port captain, it turns out, is multilingual, and the news that he has to share completely destroys Jack's hopes. Mixing different languages together, perhaps in a little deference to help out Stephen here, he tells Stephen that Coelho's yard, the yard they'd been planning to use, was completely destroyed, and there is no other yard on the island that can rebuild a ship of the size of the Surprise. In addition, there's not a seaman to be had, throughout the island. He says the fleets had sailed early because of Nostradamus, which we'll come to in a second, I think. Um, Not even the remaining cripples would be interested in a hydrographical voyage to survey the Horn with no chance of a prize. And I think Jack had known already that that might be how the kind of deckhand market was shaping up even before he set out. Stephen tries to convince him that there are potential pirate prizes on the other side of the Strait of Magellan, in other words, in the Pacific Ocean, and the port captain reminds Stephen that Ferdinand Magellan died at the hands of natives on the other side. And Stephen has to think of a way to rationalise out of this. Indeed, he says, and how I regret that great man's untimely death. But I clearly see that I shall have to disillusion my superior officer. Allow me to thank you, however, for your luminous wholly convincing statement of the position 
and to beg your acceptance of these few pairs of English worsted stockings. <laughs> so um, Stephen politely backs out of what could have been a bit of an, a showdown and argument with the port captain. Meanwhile, I think Jack asks for and gets a very offhand reply of Nostradamus. We get a little bit of explanation here about who Nostradamus is. I, I, I know of him as a sort of soothsayer, writer of obscure kind of predictions and prophecies from many centuries ago. Who is this Nostradamus, asks Jack. Oh, says Stephen, a sort of prophet like our old Moor, but not quite so wise. <laughs> yeah, presumably because he predicts the end of the world pretty much every other decade. May I ask you whether you have made up your mind what to do? And Jack says that he thinks probably the surprise is going to be fit enough to carry them back to Seppings's yard in the UK for an overhaul. Stephen asks if he's considered yards in Portugal or Spain. He's, Stephen's itching not to make too much ground back north. I think he's itching to, to stay as far south as he can to be within reach of Sierra Leone. And he's not doing a very good job of hiding, I don't think. Jack says that he, Jack and Harding, had thought about this all before deciding on Funchal, but neither Portugal nor Spain was likely to be as good or welcoming or well-suited to a refit of the surprise as would Funchal. And now the winds are against them for either one of those two. He'll have to have the carpenter find some wood and shipwrights locally to get them in just good enough shape to get home to Seppings's yard where they can get the best seamen as well for their onward journey. And he was about to say, head for England, home and beauty, of course. But, says the text, for the fear that the mention of the first two might bring the third into Stephen's mind and wound him cruelly. His expression was already far from cheerful. And Jackson noticing the discomfiture of his friend here. I don't think he completely understands exactly where this discomfiture comes from, but it's a touching moment anyhow. Yeah. Well, Stephen's look wasn't coming from thoughts about heading home. He was thinking about the extreme impatience of any revolutionary force. You know, so he's thinking, all right, the Chileans, we've had to put them on hold, put them on hold, put them on hold for the 100 days here. He doesn't want them to lose faith or for the folks who are currently leading the effort in Chile to be replaced by what he calls a more enthusiastic, impatient body with even less knowledge of the facts. But he doesn't think these premonitions of his, these concerns should override the opinion of two experienced sea officers about where they really need to get the ship repaired and recruit their crew. So as Stephen's thinking about this and they're walking along, they hear these hoots of laughter and then the imitation of a man's falsetto and then more laughter. Jack speeds up, sees that the imitator is, as the book says, the heaviest, hairiest, most pimpled of his new midshipmen, Store, accompanied by the admiring smallest, a first voyager called Shepard. And I thought, wow, Store came aboard when all the stores were coming aboard, and Shepard came aboard <laughs> right as wanted, you know, came aboard from oh, the Shepard. That's all right. brilliant. You, oh, you yeah. play with us, O'Brien, here, so maybe you are, but, but good fun here. But yeah. Store, it turns out, is the son of an old shipmate, Jack's old shipmate, who's now Rear Admiral Sir Harry Store. So an old shipmate, also somebody clearly with some influence here. By the way, no real life equivalent that we could find. And um, Jack had brought him aboard, but been really surprised at this store's uncouth, silent barbarity while he had had him invited to dine in the cabin. 
and he sees that Store and Shepherd are following Wantage and a carpenter's mate openly mocking them. So they're making fun mm. of the carpenter's mate and particularly making fun of Wantage, who's, who's been castrated here. Jack doesn't like this at all. It's one of these kinds of injustice, especially injustice of bullying between you know, one member of the midshipman's birth and another that really, really rubs Jack up the wrong way. So he gets to call out in what we hear is his strong seagoing voice. He asks the two who gave them leave to come ashore and tells them to go back to Harding at the double and to tell Harding that the captain's orders are for store to go to the foremast head and Shepard to go to the mizzen and stay there until the captain returns. And after those two run off, Wantage comes up and Jack asks Wantage what errand he's on. He was on his way to go and uh, cheapen some pieces of dragon wood for the carpenter. And cheapening mean negotiating a good price. We'll, we'll come back to Dragonwood in a second. Jack is delighted to learn that Wantage was being used for his language skill, that he'd learned how to speak Portuguese from his father who grew up in Funchal and also from his grandmother. And later, Jack tells Stephen that Wantage can interpret for them, which is a great thing, right? So Stephen doesn't have to limp along with his very, very poor understanding of Portuguese. He adds that Wantage had proved Stephen's point. You had to learn the language from your youth to speak it and understand it really well. He says that was good luck for Wantage, but thinks it might also be his loss too. Um, if he hadn't known the language, maybe he would not have cooked hold of the shepherd, and then Wantage's story wouldn't have turned out quite the way that it was. But Mike, let's go back. I think I spy a Patrick O'Brien botany reference here. What can we find out, do you think, about Dragonwood? Yeah. So, Ian, yeah, this dragon wood from the Dracaena tree, you know, fascinating. According to legend, the dragon tree is related to Leyden, an ancient dragon that had a hundred heads and spoke in as many different voices. Wow. So Juno, the queen of the gods and the mother of Mars, was married, and her mother Gaia gave her three golden apples as a gift and set the dragon Leyden to guard them in the Garden of Hesperides. Hercules intended to steal the golden fruit, killed the dragon, and from the creature's blood sprang forth these dracona or dragon trees here. Huh. And so Leighton gets put in the constellation Draco and wraps himself around the North Star, magically boosting the power of defense, war, and new works. And so cool. now all of this legend is related to the fact that the sap from this tree is an incredible blood red color full of red pigments and resins very nearly resembling the blood of a dragon or at least what they thought was the blood of the dragon it's been worshipped it's been revered as a specimen you know largely in tenerife where it mostly grows and around that region but in the 1400s there was said to be one of these trees which was thousands of years old finally destroyed in a storm in 1868 but we've got a couple of ties back you know this Red resin was what Stradivarius used to color enrich and create the resins so famous in his violins here. Natives used it in mummification. Its bark used the color hair red. They hollowed out dead trees for beehives. It was just kind of this wild litany of things. And, and very, I, I don't know if we can find a good picture of one of these fascinating looking trees as well. Wow. Let's see if we can. It's a very cool reference to the Stradivarius varnish as well. Really, yeah. really interesting. <laughs> wow, great link. Now that Jack 
has identified what he sees as the injustice being perpetrated, the bullying going on between these midshipmen, he calls in Lieutenant Harding and shares his concerns. He says that only this first voyager seems interested in learning any of their duty. He describes the behavior that he'd seen earlier that afternoon. He's most angry about Storr, who is, to all appearances, a gentleman's son, showing this kind of conduct. He told Storr that if he sees anything like that again, he'll make him fast to a gun, beat him, and put him ashore at the nearest port, whatever the country. He says that Storr is too old to be put to birth with the gunner, but he wants the gunner to look after the youngsters, and so he hopes that Daniel and Salmon and Adams, who must be easily 30, will keep Storr in order. To say nothing, he says, of poor wantage, who must make the wretched fellow anxious. So he's asking for the help of Harding, the boatswain and the boatswain's mates, to keep Storr really occupied and busy, and for Storr to be sent straight to the masthead if he presumes to start a seaman, to, to hit a seaman with a rope's end, or with a foot or a rope or a fist or anything else. He says, if they recommission in England, he very much doubts that Storr will be invited to be part of any new ship's company. Mm. So, Mike, another bit of Jack Aubrey leadership here, um, and he's trying to set the family of the Surprise of Ship's company into some kind of shape, and also do it so that he doesn't have to have eyes in the back of his head and to be monitoring the situation all the time just for himself. Yeah. And, and I think Jack realizes that, you know, he's he's in a, a delicate position here. He's acted very boldly. But later he's telling Stephen that I really bore you with the miseries of command since a good ship, a happy ship, but he's the, the two of these are really the same thing, really runs herself once everyone settles down. And, and you know, Jack and Stephen have this really funny conversation. Stephen's trying to reply, talking about ethos and tribes. And, and Jack goes on saying that it's, you know, it's really a lot more difficult commanding a ship in peacetime when it's, you know, often impossible to even get a ship. And he points out that the only reason the three young men that joined at Fung Chao came on was because their fathers were highly influential and he says, boys with highly influential fathers must be handled with tongs, particularly in peacetime. You know, he says that they're writing home uh, and any word gets out to one of their relatives well, speaking ill of, of any of the officers aboard the surprise, then that officer may never get a ship again. So I think Jack, not so much worried about himself, but worried about the rest of his command here and their interactions you know, with a guy like Store here. And we know this is blue at the mizzen we're reading here. We're hoping that Jack's one day going to be blue at the mizzen. And we don't want, I, I keep looking for you know potential complications. Now we've got one here. Well, we had mentioned earlier a, a great one sentence Patrick O'Brien paragraph. And here comes another one. I know we have these Faulkner writing contests. Who can open a book like Faulkner can open a book? Who can, you know, I always do the same thing. Who can write like O'Brien here? It says, Jack Aubrey could never have been described as enthusiastically evangelical, but he did possess a sort of disseminated piety, sometimes expressing itself in mere superstition, sometimes in very powerful singing of his favorite psalms, and sometimes in little private rites, such as keeping presents or good news for Sundays. He starts with this great opening, then he kind of leaves it for a minute. He'll come back to this. He says, on this particular Sunday, you know, it's Jack saving something for the Sunday, but on this particular Sunday, 
Harding is entertaining many of the officers and the gunroom members at what Wantage has pointed out to be the best eating house in Funchal, while Jack and Stephen are off enjoying a young boar in the hills roasted in the local fashion, probably roasted down you know, in a pit here. And a midshipman finds Jack to report that there's been a packet that's delivered a huge amount of mail for the ship and it's come in. Ah, so Jack heads back. Stephen grabs his letters. He goes back to his cabin to read them. And the first is a very agreeable letter from Christine Wood written before she'd received Stephen's letter. So he's like, ah, okay. He doesn't know what her reaction is, but she's enclosed the feathers of an unidentified nocturnal bird. So their their strong connection on all things scientific and natural is there. The second is a message from Jacob. Now, he uncodes it, and the first part of it speaks about certain Chileans and their arrangements with some anxiety, but then Stephen's unable to decode the rest of the letter. And he thinks, you know, Jacob must have lost his way with the cipher that he was using. He must have gotten something off. And now, you know, Stephen can't make any sense of it. And after a very long time with no success, which really dampens his spirit, he walks in to see a big, happy, smiling Jack who says, I hope your letters were as pleasant as mine. And Jack explains that he has one from a nephew of Mr. Lawrence. And, you know, we get a lot of, of exposition going back you know, Lawrence Jack's lawyer from the stock exchange trial, Jack, it turns out, had hired this nephew, a pupil of an agricultural expert, Arthur Young, that we remember hearing about a good while mm. back in the enclosure days. And several years back, he brought this youngster on to manage a failing property. And this is that district that Jack had inherited from his cousin, great district, Great seat in Parliament is what saved Jack a little bit, but the farm's just not working out. And this young man, John, had devised a scheme to drain the land without enclosing it. So without hurting the tenants, but also using their help so that everybody would benefit. And the year before, the property had actually finally returned 40 pounds to Jack. Jack said that every pheasant he'd ever shot there cost him at least half a guinea. That you know, This property has just been a pain all the time. But he's just received confirmation that this year, the property is paying him 450 pounds. And he's just so excited, more than his post-captain's pay. And Jack, the text tells us, had had an indication of this good news earlier, but he wanted to save the announcement of the good news for a confirming post and a Sunday. So now we're back to the first mm. paragraph, like, ah, now, Jack, I want to save this good news with you. But he notices that Stephen, perhaps not quite taking it the way he expected. No, exactly. Stephen's clearly distracted by his whole, this whole issue of correspondence was something that was bugging Stephen at the beginning of the chapter and is continuing to bug him now we're getting towards the, the end of the chapter. Stephen congratulates Jack, gives him joy of his welcome news, but Jack notices this uneasiness and says, I'm sorry for all this personal talk about uh, about money. You're clearly uneasy. And Stephen says, well, if I am uneasy, it's from another cause. And again, in the back of his mind, he's not prepared to say to Jack, but in the back of his mind, he's really anxious to get to Sierra Leone. So rather transparently, his next question is, how long are these repairs going to take? Jack thinks the repairs on the island are going to take eight or nine days. Stephen then asks for Ringel 
to carry him to England, sailing tonight if possible. Jack realises that this must be due to the information that Stephen had received in his letter. He asks no questions and he passes the word for Mr. Reed. Reed, of course, true to type, is ready to go at a moment's notice. He can have the Ringle underway in 20 minutes. He can sail with his carpenter's mate, since Ringle's carpenter is helping with all the repairs aboard the Surprise. And not for the first time, and I, I guess maybe not for the last, I don't know, um, Ringle rides to the rescue. Um, there's great wind. There are perfect sailing conditions. The Ringle can make this passage home really quickly. And another passage that goes by in a, in a, in a twinkling here, Stephen spending his time below, trying to figure out where the coding had gone wrong in this letter from Jacob, presumably also agonizing about his possible suit of Christine Woods. Reed hopes that they might be able to duplicate or even beat the prior speed run that they'd had up the channel in the Ringle with Stephen. But the weather in the channel doesn't oblige them. There's strong winds, there's rain, there are adverse tides, and it's a worn ship's company of the Ringle by the time they set Dr. Matcher in ashore in the Pool of London. He's badly dressed, as we mentioned right at the top of the show, Mike. Stephen is looking pretty badly dressed because Killig and his mate, who had been busy uh, entertaining local ladies, had forgotten to pack any of Stephen's dress clothes. So we had pretty much what he had been standing up in when he first slung himself aboard the Ringle uh, some weeks previously. Anyhow, as Stephen's cab pulls up to the Admiralty, this shabbiness of his appearance starts to work against him. Harler, an underporter, tells the head porter that he's not sure what he's looking at here. He says, here, there's a rum cove paying off a nasty Tower Hamlets cab, Mr. Simpson. Shall I tell him to go round to the tradesman's entrance? <laughs> Simpson peered over his shoulder for a while, watching with narrowed eyes while the last groats were counted out. He's an image of Stephen here counting out his money in tiny, tiny, small change. He elbowed his assistant aside, and when the rum cove came to the hatch, greeted him with a civil, Good afternoon, sir. To this, Stephen replied, And a good afternoon to you, to be sure. I do not appear to have a visiting card about me, but if Sir Joseph is in the way... Please be so good as to let him know that Dr. Maturin would be glad of a word at his earliest convenience. Certainly, sir, says the porter, who knows what's o'clock. I am not quite sure, of course, but I believe he is in. Should you care to wait, sir? Harlow, show the gentleman to the inner waiting room and carry his chest. <laughs> End of chapter two. So yeah. somebody who knows Stephen for who he is comes to the rescue, not for the first time. And and I wouldn't be surprised if, as you say, Ian, in addition to recognizing Stephen, you know, Stephen absolutely worried about getting to Sierra Leone, but I think also really concerned, what is this that Dr. Jacobs trying to tell me here about right. the Chileans? Apparently, there's a lot of stuff here, and I have no idea what it means. I better get in here and find out. So I, I, I think, uh, you know, our, our good man here at the uh, at, you know, the porter who's elbowing his assistant aside is going, I've seen this look on Stephen's face before. Let's get him inside. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, what a chapter. No shortage of story and a plot full of reversals in all directions in this chapter here. Yeah. Boy. And yeah. And if you are reading chapter one, like a conventional reader of a conventional novel, and you'd believe that the collision with the with the timber ship was the big plot reversal well guess what there's been plenty more as you say mike to go out here jack and stephen well they've got this problem that they can't get the surprise repaired 
And, oh, now the Navy is going to repay you immediately. But then now they're off to Funchal and ah, it's burned down and there is no seamen there to recruit. So they're going to have to head to England after all. For Stephen, on the one hand, he's really hot to get to Sierra Leone. But as you say, Mike, actually now he's got to go to Funchal, then Sierra Leone. Now he's got to go back to London to get some idea of what lies behind this message. Surprises coming to England anyway. Is he ever going to get to Chile? Is his heart ever going to get to Sierra Leone? <laughs> We've got to wonder. Poor old Stephen. Not not for the first time. Not really sure of when he's going to be able to, to make the moves that will help him achieve what he wants to achieve here. Yeah. And and I think for both of them, Sierra Leone and Chile, he's thinking, you know, and and if I ever get there, will they actually still want me? <laughs> right. <laughs> will yeah. they both have moved on, right? Right. Oh no. So it's funny, way back in um, way back in the early part of the canon, we talked about Diana as not really having a place in the world and that some of her behavior and her sort of coldness and her courage and her self-reliance came from not really having any place to be. And, and maybe that same situation in a different way has fallen on Stephen now. He hasn't really got a place in the world to be and he's not sure when he gets to any of these places that he's going to be wanted when he's there and you can draw a line, I guess, from that to the anxieties that might have been in the head and the heart of Patrick O'Brien with his wife gone and, you know, his uh, him getting physically frail and putting himself up in Trinity College. And I'm not, not really sure where he belongs in the world anymore, which is a really touching thought, I think. Boy, it, it is. It, it, it takes me back even a little further to think that when Master and Commander first started, Stephen had no place in the world. You know, he yeah. leaves the octagonal room. He goes back to sleeping rough by some yeah. cattle, or, you know, runs into Jack. And I kind of wonder if that was a little bit of O'Brien's life as well. And then, you know, for Stephen, along comes Diana. Things start to sort of fall in place, albeit pretty rough for O'Brien. Perhaps with Mary, things got straightened out, but now they're both on the other side of that again. And uh Yeah. Very touching indeed. Wow. Wow. <sighs> well, I'm sorry for Jack and Stephen and the Chileans, but I, for one, am really glad to be going back to England. Yeah. You know, I don't know if O'Brien had any idea this would be his last full book, but I certainly don't. I, I, I realize it will be, and I don't want to wrap up the series without getting back to England, seeing the families and some of my supporting favorite supporting characters again. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy we're headed that way. I think I'm happy too that this affair with Isabel hasn't apparently turned into anything more serious than it already is. Um, it would be a worry, wouldn't it? The idea that Jack might be about to create another problem with the commanding officer, put himself in another destructive position with respect to his marriage to Sophie, hurt his chances at the Admiralty, hurt his chances of you know, a happy family life. At least he seems to have stopped or taken himself away from it. It's also sad to see Stephen so disappointed, but we have this hope, all of us on Team Stephen, that there's some new love ready for him in his life. It would be really nice as well to see him back with Bridget. Mike, you were mentioning family, and this has been the new relationship that's added a new dimension to Stephen's character, yeah. his relationship with his daughter. And we haven't heard from or about her really since her mother died. And uh, that's something that I think we'd be really keen to see. And along the way... Wouldn't it be nice to resolve the identity of the woman waving from the end of the cob? <laughs> maybe we could find that out, or maybe yeah, it's always yeah. going to be ambiguous. Right. Well, I'm, I'm happy that at least we've got this thing that says, 
whoever it is, she walks like Isabel. She walks like Christine. She walks like Diana. And, yeah. and I keep thinking, and maybe given who we think O'Brien is related to Stephen, she walks like Mary. Well, it's funny. It, I, I, I had this reaction. You and I were talking earlier today uh, that, uh, that there was just so much in this chapter. But I realized there's so much in a lot of O'Brien chapters. He yeah. really is a master <laughs> at packing it in. But I, I was grieved a little bit looking back on chapter one and two that I, I knew from a plot point he had to kind of take Lord Keith out of the way because we didn't want Jack to have a you know, real surety about his legal position. But couldn't we have done that without Lord Keith having been defrauded and his life completely turned yeah. over? We knew we wanted to make a point, yeah, about the sailors and how disorderly in you know comparison to the soldiers. But do we really have to have Mr. Wright getting all beat up? You know, we, we saw a lot of bad sailor behavior here. So those things, I thought, oh, really, really, really. So I wonder a little bit too, you know, we talked a little bit about late stage as we got to the end of 100 days. And I thought, I wonder if there's some more late stage kind of reflecting that says, guess what, folks? Life doesn't always turn out the way you really want it to. And sometimes it's rough along the way here. Maybe, maybe not. Don't know. And Mike, in chapter two, we've had this new story told to us from Jack about the, uh, the relative of Lawrence's managing Jack's property and all the profit that he start to turn, showing that if you go all the way back to the Yellow Admiral, you don't have to do the enclosure thing. You don't have to exploit your tenants and the common people to do a good job turning around the productivity of your land. So there's a nice little payoff for us there. We have this emasculated guy, Wantage, returning from the hills to the surprise. We have a new... Midshipman, who's a bully, we've we've seen that before. We've got a bit of a worry about that. He's the son of an admiral and a gentleman, but no seaman, so it seems. Perhaps some of these new characters, some of these new situations are going to play out into themes that last the whole length of the book. Maybe they're going to be dropped in the next chapter. Maybe they're going to be used to make points or drive a little change in the narrative, which is what Patrick O'Brien often does. But at the minute, Mike, we've got this feeling of, you know, all these interesting little extra things being dropped into the pot and given a bit of a stir by O'Brien. Here at Chapter 2, it's really, really hard to tell where any of those is going to take us. I don't know, Mike. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing where all of this is going to go. Yep. Me too, Ian. I I guess there's just one thing for it. The only way we're going to find out is to ask the question we always ask. What do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, with all my heart. episode number uh, subtract Mike's birthday add Thomas Cochrane's inside leg measurement multiply by the average length of a Star Trek episode 
176? Yeah, that's probably right. <laughs>